Welcome to episode 15 of Double Take, the Mellon podcast. I'm your co-host, Rafe Lewis, Mellon's Director of Investigative Investment Research. And I'm your other co-host and investigative researcher, Jack Encarnacio. As you likely know, Rafe and I like to bring you folks thoughtful, candid, journalistic discussions on substantial themes impacting public markets investors. And well, the biggest, beefiest theme out there right now, it's got to be what some are calling the meme trade or the Reddit trade, the retail rebellion, the Robin Hood revolution. As some stocks soared skyward, hedge funds with short positions in those stocks began to feel some serious pain, prompting many to cover at any cost, which compounded the skyward movements. Meanwhile, as the hedge funds sought liquidity, they were selling long positions, which, you know, created a downdraft in stocks nowhere near the meme trade. And all throughout this, high-frequency trading shops started to get involved, grabbing capital gains along the way and creating further price and volume distortions. It was safe to say a quintessential 2021 story filled with social media wars, political grandstanding, David versus Goliath comparisons, and more. Yeah, I think that that sums it up pretty well, Jack. It's enough to make your head spin. Uh, So we wanted to put together an all-star guest list today to help you, our fair listener, better understand just what the heck is going on here and where it could all go, perhaps even more importantly. Uh, From inside of Mellon, we're bringing back the inestimable Dragan Skoko, who is Mellon's head of trading and analytics, uh, who many of you may recall was our guest during the height of the first wave of the COVID-19 pandemic. And he's going to describe you know, what's happening today from a trading perspective and some of the distortions he's seeing and how a guy like him can deal with this. Then from outside of Mellon, we will bring you John Reed Stark. Now, John is the founding chief of the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission's Office of Internet Enforcement. He has since moved on into private consulting practice, and he is also a visiting fellow at Duke University's School of Law. Dragon, it's so great to have you back on the podcast. And as usual, it only can happen when the world is going completely topsy-turvy. Um, but at least this time, it's it's mostly just impacting people who invest in the stock market, and it's not about a pandemic per se. But, um, you know, I guess let's start on a very high level with you on this whole retail you know, Robin Hood trade phenomenon that's going on. Can you just talk, generally speaking, How unprecedented, how different is this from the perspective of you, a guy who runs a trading desk for a a very large asset manager? Uh, Sure. So so the retail participation in general, um, I would say the last year plus feels very much like the environment we had uh, in, say, 1998, 1999, 2000. Um, so, so there is just um, a tremendous amount of interest to participate in the equity markets among the retail investors. Uh, they are uh, involved uh, every day, and um, and and uh, they are uh, certainly having an impact on a number of uh, important market structure dynamics uh, through their participation. Now, there are also some important differences. Um, The market structure itself has evolved quite a bit since that uh, late 1990s 1990s period uh, until today. Um, And uh, and kind of those differences impact how we are able to interact with or are affected by the retail uh, participation and order flow. 
Dragon, is it tough to discern what is retail order flow and what is sort of follow-on tracking retail order flow? Is it hard for you as a trader to really say this is Robinhood, for instance, versus uh, other strategies that might be picking up on momentum? It actually is. It's not something that's um, obvious um, just by looking at, say, uh, price action on an average day. Some, some, you know, uh, just like tremendous uh, examples notwithstanding. Um, for a few reasons. Uh, firstly, um, a good number of retail brokers uh, do not actually directly participate uh, in um, equity markets. They don't uh, send their order flow to the exchanges or other trading venues. Uh, some of them exclusively sell their order flow to what we refer to as wholesale market makers. Others have a combination of that, so selling the order flow, and uh, looking to internalize the order flow within their own ecosystem. So if it's a broker or a firm that has a retail brokerage arm and an institutional brokerage arm and perhaps some other trading activities, they might bundle all of that within the ecosystem and try to internalize the order flow. And then lastly, uh, you do have some you know, firms with a much more sophisticated uh, trading infrastructure that do actually participate in a variety of ways. But that uh, complexity uh, does make it more difficult for us to uh, recognize that, hey, this is heavy retail participation just by looking at a price action or even just by looking at the volume um, and also uh, the order flow that is sold to the wholesale market makers, we cannot uh, directly interact with that order flow. Uh, we deal with the exhaust of that order flow. So things that a wholesale market maker does not want to keep on their books and that eventually makes it out to the dark pools and exchanges and so on. But that initial order flow, we don't get to interact with directly. We don't get to participate in facing off with a retail investor. We face off uh, against their market makers. Jagan, I'm wondering, without getting into any specifics about any particular trades that we may have been involved in, uh, you know, I'm curious if you can get into, just generally speaking, how our ability to trade was impacted, if at all, during these past few weeks of what's fairly unprecedented retail activity, including, you know, the stoppages of trade in certain names. Sure. Um, so it's interesting, uh, and, and I followed this uh, fairly closely just because uh, it was such a fascinating uh, case study, frankly, in our market structure and in, in, in uh, behavior of uh, uh, market participants and so on. But I think it was interesting that some buy side folks, you know, stated on 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 the uh, TV channels that they were not impacted. They're long-term investors. This does nothing for their thesis, and it doesn't impact how they um, implement their portfolios. To me, uh, it's kind of inevitable inevitable that you're going to be impacted for a host of reasons. Firstly, if you happen to be holding. Uh, security uh, that goes through, you know, some tremendous round trip of, you know, going up a few thousand percent and then all the way back down, uh, the weight of that holding in the portfolio is going to change so rapidly 
intraday and from day to day that it affects just your risk profile uh, and your exposures. Um, so if you're a portfolio manager, you kind of need to think about do you want that idiosyncratic event uh, that is not related to the fundamental aspects or any other kind of investment thesis that you might have, do you want that to kind of dictate your performance? And so if you don't, now you have to send some orders to the trading desk in order to change your risk profile. And so if we now have a, a trade, now we are interact, interacting directly uh, with uh, other market participants. As I said earlier, for us, that will be um, a good chunk of that will be against the exhaust of the wholesale market makers order flow. And now you're trading in a security that has exceptional intraday volatility, very wide bid-ask spreads, and it's trading um, with a significant short-term momentum. Um, all of those things combined um, kind of cause for um, a very complex trading environment. And some of the tools that you would use on majority of stocks majority of the time are not going to work. And you need to reconsider your execution strategy, your timing, uh, your own uh, participation uh, uh, throughout that event. And, uh, and so, yeah, I think absolutely institutional uh, traders and investors are affected by this in a pretty profound way. And I guess the maybe the other side of the coin here is that you had some hedge funds that were at a minimum temporarily distressed and, and very heavily so. And in order to deal with these short squeezes they were dealing with on their short portfolio, they had to start liquidating long holdings. And, uh, you know, that was creating some downward <laughs> momentum in a lot of stocks too. Could just, what did you see on that front? Of course. So, so, uh, there's a bunch of stuff happening, right? Um, so firstly, um, if you have this massive retail participation and uh, a handful of securities, another thing worth pointing out that a good chunk of their participation is through call options and not in the actual stock itself. So, so now I don't want to ignore the actual stock participation. That's also significant, but you also have this options activity. Now, if you think about how the options market work, and I'm sorry, that doesn't get at your question directly, but it's important, and I'll tie it back to your question as well. Um, you know, the way that the options market, markets work, uh, the retail investor will go ahead and buy the call option, and then the market maker that sells them those call options will then need to hedge out that exposure, and they'll hedge out the exposure by buying stock. So now you have... Retail, retail traders buying a stock, retail traders buying a call option, market makers uh, buying a stock to hedge out their exposure in, in, a, in the options markets. And then you have, as you mentioned, the hedge funds with extremely concentrated positions uh, uh, liquidating the short. So they are further exasperating the move itself in, in, in the stocks uh, that are being squeezed. And as you mentioned, they are also having to liquidate their long positions uh, to, to kind of manage their overall portfolio exposures or risk or uh, cater to the margin calls. So this is where you might want to look at the 13F uh, filings to see what their longs might be. Those filings are kind of 
scale. So, you know, you might not have a true picture of what they're going to be involved in. But uh, you can see how the impact spreads beyond the handful of securities in which the retail traders have interest to, uh, you know, a broader set of uh, uh, stocks and potentially other securities as well. Um, uh, there, there's so many uh, consequences of that uh, sort of event. Um, one of the things that it's worth mentioning also, and I, and I talked about uh, the impact on volatility, the bid spread, the short-term momentum. Also, uh, you see a significant change in the intraday volume profile of these securities, right? So um, for years, we had very steady intraday volume profiles, and institutional trading kind of tends to be built around that um, consistency, right? So you have significant liquidity and volatility on the open, then throughout the day, you kind of have things settled, both liquidity and volatility. And then into the end of the day, you have tapered volatility and very high liquidity. Um, things are different now. You might have huge volume spikes at lunchtime. Uh, you might have very inconsistent volatility profiles. So all of these execution tools that you build uh, for typical uh, institutional execution tactics like VWAP, Volume Rated Average Price Execution Strategy, you're trading on a close, et cetera. Anything that fa follows some patterns of volume and volatility uh, is impacted drastically, and those tools have to be reconsidered. Uh, they have to be recalibrated uh, in order for, for you to participate in a sensible manner. Dragon, one of the, perhaps the flashpoint in this whole phenomenon was when Robinhood started to bar their account holders from being able to buy more of a security that was, you know, shooting to the moon, as they like to say. And there was obviously a lot of discussion and speculation as to why that may have been, why suddenly they had to stop folks from being able to buy certain names. I wonder what that signified to you as someone that knows this world as well as you do. Did, did we learn anything new about the limits of these trading systems or the systems that, you know, Robinhood and others use to execute retail trades? Yeah, that's, that's, that's a great question. So uh, firstly, kind of going back to the first principle of principles of what happens when um, a trader buys a stock through their broker, right? So, so, so you buy security, um, uh, and then while the transaction has uh, been affected, uh, the actual movement of stock and cash um, doesn't happen until two days later, the so-called T plus two settlement cycle. So uh, in that um, you know, 36 to 48 hour period, from the time you affect the transaction until the time that uh, shares of stock arrive in your account and cash is moved out of your account and into the seller's account. Um, during that time frame, the clearinghouse, uh, which is in, in the, for example, in the U.S., you have the, the DTCC. The clearinghouse requires a certain collateral from the from the broker, and that collateral basically protects the integrity of the transaction in case something happens to the broker or the client. Um, the trade can still uh, settle and be processed. Uh, 
Um, so I think that works well great majority of the time. And I think what happens in a situation like what we saw in January is that you have a couple of brokers with such a homogenous client base uh, with, with such a concentrated interest in a couple of securities, uh, the volatility they caused, uh, of course, uh, triggered the risk systems um, part of the clearinghouse, which in turn increased their collateral requirements of those couple of brokers. And, um, you know, those that were not ca- as well capitalized um, ran out of their cash position uh, to be able to cover those collateral requirements um, pretty quickly. Um, typically, even on a very bullish market day, uh, a broker will see something like 52% of order flow, say, skewed to the buy side, 48 to the sell side. Here, not only did you see a significant skew in one direction, but you saw it in a handful of stocks. And so uh, the combination of the one-way flow and the extreme volatility uh, caused the clearinghouse to do what they have to do and and the broker to manage its own risk and to maintain its own sustainability had to um, uh, kind of uh, protect its capital position, its cash position, and limit um, um, kind of the ability for clients to open positions. None of that is new. It's just the magnitude of the event and the attention the event had that um, that just like made it such a such a profound um, kind of situation for everybody. And I think the unfortunate bit is that it just kind of turned into this. It fed into like this populist. Uh, uh, conversation and dialogue right away um, and among people that have the ear and eyes of, of a lot of followers but don't necessarily have the know-how and the true understanding of how capital markets function. Right, right. Yeah, there there is an education here for a lot of folks, no question. And what, what forced the curiosity was not being able to buy when you wanted to buy. That, that gets people uh, asking the right questions rather quickly after they realize perhaps that the conclusions they first jumped to might not, you know, be the reason that they couldn't trade. Um, so I wonder, Drake, and the next time a name picks up steam like this, we, we must assume going forward, I suppose, that on any given day, a Reddit thread could explode another name. Um, do you expect market participants to respond any differently if, if and when that happens again than what we saw in this instance? Um, I, so, so another great question. Um, um, I think that you might see uh, brokers react a little faster to the to the incredible uh, demand uh, and strain that this puts on their um, on their cash position. Uh, so you might see the risk management uh, tools be calibrated to to react to this. Um, uh, um, better, right? So that you don't have to go to uh, increase your lines of credit and go to the venture capital community to raise billions of, of dollars in order to, to remain solvent. Um, so I would expect, uh, if anything, a faster reaction. I do want to point out one thing. Uh, this is not a retail trading phenomenon. In other words, us institutional traders 
we get turned away by brokers uh, when when uh, they're facing some uh, extreme circumstances uh, in the trades that we may make, uh, which is why you know we um, spread our uh, brokerage exposure risk across many counterparties. But on any given day, um, any of the uh, brokers uh, might not want to transact in certain names. They might not want to commit capital. They might not want to accommodate certain settlement instructions. Uh, and we deal with that uh, just the same. Um, I think the fundamental difference is that we understand the constraints that lead to those uh, circumstances, and, and we hedge out our risk and manage our risk by having many broker relationships and understanding you know, where to trade for what type of uh, trade and given the constraints that we're dealing with. Dragon, last question for you for me. Is there any long-lasting lesson we can learn from all of this as institutional asset managers? I think, I think that's also a great question. Well, firstly, I think we need to improve our execution tools by enriching the data sets uh, with with uh, more and better uh, sentiment uh, data and, and other alternative data that really uh, picks up on some of the activity uh, because, as I mentioned earlier, uh, the, the nature of that activity is more nuanced than one would think. Uh, secondly, I think in portfolio construction and management of risk, uh, we have to rethink the reliance on historical volatility models because what we saw in January um, is really, you know, uh, unprecedented in terms of the volatility move in some of the securities that, that were well uh, studied since then. Lastly, what I would say is that we cannot expect the behavior that we saw in January to be regulated away um, anytime soon. And even uh, those things that do get regulated away, the new regulation might um, lead to new dislocations and new opportunities for uh, kind of changes in market structure, and we have to be ready to, to react with that as well. Well, Dragon, I want to thank you for laying a wonderful foundation for us and trying to unpack kind of what it all comes down to when a phenomenon like this occurs is trading and the, the, the limits and the guardrails. I think there's going to be a lot more interest in the coming months and years into sort of how folks like yourself have uh, the finger on the, on the trigger in terms of being able to consummate these things when, uh, when the markets get crazy. So we really appreciate you joining us again on Double Take and look forward to talking to you again at some point. Uh, not a problem at all. Uh, thank you for, for reaching out and uh, looking forward to chatting again. Well, it was great hearing from Dragan just now about the veritable trench warfare going on worldwide as traders and portfolio managers have tried to make sense of the Robin Hood revolution and not get disemboweled by it financially. So now let's turn to John Reed Stark, formerly the head of the SEC's you know, Office of Internet Enforcement. He was actually the founding head of that office. And let's get his take on the regulatory and legal perspective on all of this. John, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Rafe. Great to talk to you guys. Well, we're, we're thrilled. You know, John, a, a lot of pundits are saying that the recent retail day trader stock frenzies smack of market manipulation, which is a very specific, you know, legal term of art. That said, neither Jack nor I are lawyers. We don't even pretend to be. So can you, a 
rather well-known and uh, reputable lawyer. Can you please explain what market manipulation is? And much more importantly, maybe, in your opinion, is that what we're seeing here? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, you know, I, I worked in the SEC Division of Enforcement for almost 20 years, and I don't think anybody there really fully understands what market manipulation is. It's something you know it when you see it. It's evolved extraordinarily over time. Historically, market manipulation meant wash trades, match trades, layering, spoofing, which are all terms used that uh, where traders would sort of orchestrate trading in a way to make the trading, make it look like there's more volume than there is, there's more interest than there is. And that's historically what was meant by market manipulation. And it was very specific, required specific types of intent and a very complex trading trail, sort of, um, and, and a lot of a, a really, a, a fairly significant conspiracy. Well, fast forward to the, the 80s and the 90s, and things changed dramatically for market manipulations. And really, instead of the SEC using some of their specific statutory provisions that deal with washed and matched trades and so on, they use their much broader provision, which is just their anti-fraud provision, Section 10B and Rule 10B-5, which essentially say you can't lie, cheat, or steal in connection with the purchase of a security. Well, what does that have to do with market manipulation? The way the SEC looked at it, and it's been accepted by the courts, is that if you're using spreading false information to drive a stock up or down in the form of pump and dump scheme, and that could be using social media to publish a bogus press release about positive earnings, a, a phony rumor of a new treatment that cures some terrible disease, a, a fake news story about an acquisition, or any other sort of scam or masquerade that would somehow jumpstart a stock price to go up or hit it hard to go down. Most of the SEC's cases are uh, pump and dump schemes as opposed to any sort of uh, short scheme where you're trying to drive down a price because it's it's historically been much easier to prove. And the way the SEC brought these cases, and if you look historically at all the cases brought that were under the rubric of market manipulation, there was usually a concrete false statement. Like I said, this fake press release or fake rumor or, or a, a fake contract that you had. And you as an investigator at the SEC, which I was, could call and confirm that fact. You could find out, is this earnings announcement true? Did it really come from the company? Does the company really have this big contract? And then you would follow sort of the three trails, you know, the, the trading trail, the money trail, and the internet protocol trail to figure out who the people were that were spreading this false information and look to see if they profited. But interestingly, you don't even really necessarily have to profit. You know, the SEC has brought cases of market manipulation where the the perpetrator of the scam didn't even profit. So that's that's a long answer to. So that's uh, kind of like the attempted murder as opposed to the murder. Right? <laughs> they certainly yeah. tried to make money. It just didn't work. Yes, exactly. Wow. So I just have to ask, John, how, if at all, do you expect the SEC might crack down on the type of trading we've been seeing? Not Not to prejudice the jury, not to suggest that they should, but would you expect them to based on what played out in the past couple of weeks? Well, I think no matter what, look, when, the, when there's a case, when there's a situation that's in the headlines, the SEC is always going to investigate, period, end of story. And when they investigate, there's no conclusion as to wrongdoing. They, they spend a lot of time trying to seek the truth. 
And in this situation, they will pour over all the trading data. They will pour over all those message board postings, probably dump them into some sort of um, uh, e-discovery database and use artificial intelligence to parse any, any particular postings that seem particularly suspicious. They will look for SEC registered persons involved in the mix because they typically have higher fiduciary obligations, record keeping obligations, supervisory obligations, and they'll, they'll probably give those people closer scrutiny. And then the SEC has an additional tool that's really developed significantly over the last um, five or 10 years, which is their tipster line. Uh, they have very, very significant whistleblower provisions that can award significant financial benefits to anyone who turns in anyone else involved in securities fraud. And there's an electronic way to do it. There's a way to uh, submit your complaint anonymously. So the, the fourth track of investing, investigating that the SEC will be doing is looking at all those complaints. And 98% of them are probably not worthy of further review. They're just people ticked off at what they've seen. But maybe one or 2% will be from company insiders or other people who have special information to share with the SEC that wouldn't otherwise be publicly available or at their fingertips in the context of the investigation. You know, my heart goes out to the SEC a little bit here because I think about what the FBI has to try to do with the uh, with the kind of attack on the Capitol building. You have thousands and thousands of people coursing in and out of that building, and you're supposed to now try to, you know, put Humpty Dumpty back together again and figure out who all these people were and who may have had more malicious intent than others. In this case, you have thousands and thousands, maybe tens of thousands of retail traders and day traders who were getting amped up about this through uh, the Reddit, uh, you know, posts, these kind of, you know, notorious rooms that were going on over there and and elsewhere. And, you know, I wonder, is this is this actually uh, of a scale that the SEC has ever dealt with before? Probably not. Um, we dealt with in my office when I was chief for 11 years, we dealt with a lot of very heavily touted stocks on various message boards, but never to the extent that uh, the Reddit, the subreddit that I've seen. So probably not, but the technology is better for getting through all of that. And remember, yeah, there's a couple things to note here. The, the, the people who are making these, having these conversations and talking about stocks on Reddit and gathering together, they really, I haven't seen any allegation of anybody saying anything that wasn't true. In fact, there's a remarkable amount of transparency in saying what they're doing. So that's, the biggest hurdle here, I think, for the SEC is finding, like you said, malicious intent, finding a false statement, finding something to, to grab hold of in the context of any type of action. Because the SEC can't be the, the speech police. You know, they, they can't and neither can Reddit. No one can really take that job. So I think um, the SEC is going to have to look very hard. Another thing they can look for, which, again, I haven't heard any see, heard or seen any evidence of, but that doesn't mean it's not possible is there's a, a, a little known statute called Section 17B of the Securities Act. And there haven't been many cases brought um, in the early days of it. It was enacted, uh, I think, as I said, in, in 33. And I don't think there were ever any rules written on it. There's not much case law on it. And what it se essentially says that if you're touting a stock, meaning you're promoting it, whether it be by megaphone or newspaper or Reddit or subreddit, if you're touting that stock and you're being paid by the company, the nature, source, and amount of that compensation 
disclose that. So you have to disclose the nature, source, and amount of any compensation that you're receiving from a company to tout that company's securities. So, and it's a strict liability violation. And back in 1998, when we saw all this action on message boards and on the internet, where there was initially just a huge amount of touting and companies were waking up in the morning and just paying legions of people to promote their stock all over the internet, we brought a series of sweeps that made incredible news. And the truth is that bringing those cases as we did in 98, 99, it was like shooting fish in a barrel because these were the 33 Act of the, the Section 17B is actually a, what's known as a strict liability statute. So that means that it doesn't matter um, if you knew what you were doing was right or wrong. If you just knew what, if, if, as to the act, if you knew you were actually doing something, meaning you posted that message and you knew you were posting it, you weren't drunk when you did it or uh, not of sound mind, then you violated Section 17B. And I think in those two years after 98-99, there have, hadn't been many 17B violations forever until, oddly, when the initial coin offering craze happened. And all these people started touting different types of digital coins on various message boards and other places. And some of them were celebrities like DJ Khaled, like Steven Seagal, T.I., Floyd Moneyman Mayweather. They were all being paid by these cryptocurrency firms to tout these cryptocurrencies. And they weren't disclosing the nature and source and amount of their compensation. So the SEC once again woke up Section 17B of the Securities Act and charged all of those people with violations of Section 17B. So um, if there are people, because somebody with some ingenuity running some company might say, hey, I want to get this board touting my company, because look what it does for stock. You know, So there might have been someone going on the message boards doing that. And as I said before, also a registered person who really is, is, is not supposed to be doing what they're doing, meaning SEC registered, maybe state registered or otherwise. John, let me sort of frame it like this. I'm interested in how you'd respond to this. So you've got this sort of hive of people who are doing everything in the open in terms of trading their enthusiasm and reasons for enthusiasm on a stock on a message board or on an internet forum that's available to anybody. It's not a closed forum. It's not a members-only forum. Anybody can look at what the basis is for this bullishness in this case. And the reason they're driving a stock through the through the sky is because it would be funny, and it would be awesome, and it would be a meme. I mean, how does the SEC approach that? I mean, do they even have to? It, it just seems like it seems like there's no value judgment at all in why a stock is going up. It's strictly, are any of those players who are exchanging enthusiasm on a stock being paid to exchange that enthusiasm by you know people behind the scenes who who stand to benefit? Well, you know, when it comes to dictating how to invest. Um, the SEC job of preaching to investors is probably limited to just that, preaching. And they do a pretty good job of that. Um, Arthur Levitt, when I was, I worked for, I think, six or seven different chairmen. And Arthur Levitt was one of the more famous ones who was all about telling people how to invest. And he would hold these town meetings all over the country. And there's never been anything like it since. And he would stand up, and I used to go with him on these on occasion, and he would stand up and answer any question that anybody had about anything having to do with investing. And he wasn't afraid to look someone in the eye and say, 
Don't subscribe to the greater fool theory. Don't subscribe to momentum trading. Do your research. Look at a stock through as a value investor would. Look at, look at its cash generation, its price to earnings ratios. Study the markets. Read the filings. Look at their debt load. Look at earnings expectations. That's what he would say to people. And don't make an investment decision unless you can, based on a recommendation, unless you can look that person in the eye. So, and this was incredibly effective back then because uh, people were using the internet to, just like they did with this Reddit, a lot of people were basing their investment decisions on the internet. And at the same time, there was this extraordinary revolution, this disintermediation revolution that Robinhood kind of picked up on, but they weren't the first ones to do it. Because if you remember back then, the, the E-Trade commercial of someone sitting outside in a coffee shop on their computer, and they see a jogger run by using, enjoying some particular technology, and they turn to their computer and quickly make their trades. So there was you know, a real surge in people making these kinds of decisions without you know, instantaneous decisions and investing for the, long term, for the short term. So I think the SEC's role in this, because you bring up a good point about all these people using an investment strategy that personally I would never recommend, that no professional investor, uh, investment advisor would ever recommend, but they're all excited uh, to go about doing it anyway. And you, you can see it in Bitcoin as well. Most people don't understand what Bitcoin is, but they feel like, hey, somebody else is going to be out there who'll pay more. So why don't I get in on this and get rich quick? And it's the wrong way to invest, but it's a legitimate strategy for some people. And who am I to tell somebody or who is the SEC to tell somebody they shouldn't use a strategy if that's what they want, so long as they understand the risks? That's totally fair. But, you know, John, one of the one of the real targets here of these Robin Hood retail traders were the hedge funds that had built up substantial short positions uh, on some of these companies. And, uh, you know, I think it was it was a stated intent quite often that the goal was to squeeze the short sellers, force them to cover their positions at huge losses. And in, in some cases, there were monumental losses to the point where uh, at least one fund was pushed to the brink of insolvency and had to get a, a liquidity infusion from peers. And so, you know, it raises a lot of questions. And, and, and one of them that I'd like to ask you is just kind of, you know, it, it, from, from our point of view, I guess, as investors, you know, Jack and I, I mean, we, we look at short selling as something that could potentially be, a, you know, an efficiency creator in the market. Uh, on the other hand, some people often refer to it as kind of pernicious evil activity that's trying to, you know, destroy wealth uh, and and move it into the hands of, of very few. You know, I'm, I'm curious, what is the house view at the SEC of short selling? And are they really crying, you know, when hedge funds get, uh, you know, their butts handed to them in a situation like this? What a great question, uh, because it brings back a memory I had when I started working at the SEC, I used to work with um, the, the head of Office of Market Surveillance. His name was Joe Sella. He's retired, but uh, he was really the best market guy the SEC had or has ever had, I think, in terms of he really understood the markets. And he noticed in me every time we talked a certain cynicism or even like vitriol towards uh, short sellers. And he pulled me aside one day and he said, look, you know, you sit there and you're you're so negative about short sellers because they're betting against companies, but they actually 
perform a very important function in the marketplace, pushing back against bubbles and corporate malfeasance. And they shed light on, just like class action lawyers, you know, they can shed light on misconduct or misperceptions. And um, so they do have this function that really does serve the market very well. But right or wrong, hedge fund fees just create obscene levels of wealth for their owners. And that, that's always going to draw ire from, from people, from Congress, from the SEC, from pretty much everyone except other hedge fund owners. And, you know, the other idea, especially during the pandemic of um, short companies badly damaged by the pandemic, then being hit harder by these funds, it seems like hitting someone who's already down for the count. And it also seems like an attack against the company's workers. So in, in the, the analogy I look at, if you ever play craps, you know, there's the pass betters and then there's that don't pass better at the table who's betting with the house. And nobody likes that person and nobody wants that person at the table, but they do perform a function and they have their own way of betting. So I think, um, you know, as far as hedge funds go, they will always be under scrutiny for these reasons. They will always be under scrutiny by Congress, especially and the regulations revolving hedge funds and involving short selling are, are very complicated. Uh, they involve mostly regulation SHO, which, among other things, is designed to stop what's called naked short selling, which is when the, the seller does not borrow or arrange to borrow the securities in time to make the delivery to the buyer within the standard three-day settlement period. So the seller fails to deliver the securities to the buyer when the delivery is due. And it's called a a delivery failure or a fail to deliver. And SHO has these very uh, important standards. They're called locate standards to make sure that when these transactions happen, the brokers have a reasonable belief that that equity that's being shorted can be borrowed and delivered on a specific date before the short selling can occur. And um, there have been a lot of criticisms of regulation HO that it doesn't go far enough. So I think There'll certainly be some scrutiny to see if there were violations of SHO. And I think that um, looking, and that will involve looking at the hedge funds. And again, that takes us all back to this idea of the SEC tip line. So all it takes is one disgruntled employee from a hedge fund or one really upset competitor who's got some special information to share it with the SEC. And then the SEC will fan out, take everyone's testimony maybe refer the, refer the facts and the matter to criminal authorities. There are FBI agents typically embedded at the SEC at headquarters. And if they're not embedded, my group used to have a weekly briefing with the FBI uh, and, and assistant U.S. attorneys as well, telling them all about our case inventory and letting them cherry pick their favorite cases from that bunch. Wow. So, you know, John, there are a few notable websites that have specialized in publishing the kind of short reports we're talking about. They make no secret of the fact that they publish after they've already built up short positions so they can profit if you sort of buy into what the conclusions they've reached. And in the wake of what's happened with GameStop and some other names that were popularized on Reddit, uh, one notable short report publisher called Citron, um, the owner of that firm said he, he's not going to put out notes on short positions anymore because what happened here left him open to being sort of, I guess, ganged up on by, by the Reddit crowd. Is this a bad thing or a good thing? I mean, why isn't publishing a short report and then covering the short position when the stock plummets on publication a form of market manipulation? Can we see it that way? Wow. Well, that's a tough question. I think, uh, you know, proving because either side has its negatives. 
right? By publishing the report, you can have a dramatic impact on that stock. And remember, it works in reverse also. When Warren Buffett decided to buy Apple, the whole world bought Apple the next day. And that's not a bad trading strategy. And when Warren Buffett decides to sell something, the whole world starts selling the next day. That's not a terrible trading set, uh, the trading method. Now, I think Warren Buffett has all sorts of controls in there so that, that this information is not announced until he's already done that trading. My guess is because his lawyers or he is, is concerned about somehow conditioning the market uh, by just announcing, hey, this is what we're going to do. But I don't know that there's anything wrong with that. So the reverse shouldn't necessarily be illegal either. Um, so I think you know transparency into trading, it happens to happen with Warren Buffett because his company is a publicly traded company. So eventually he's going to be disclosing what his holdings are. But if you're a private investor, I don't know that you have those disclosure responsibilities to the public. And the short sellers are kind of giving up something there too because, again, my guess is that adding something to a short list uh, will certainly, could certainly have an extraordinarily negative impact on that stock. And at the SEC, I always used to preach, and I've been teaching first at Georgetown Law School and now at Duke Law School, a technology course. Now it's, it's more about cyber and data breaches. Uh, initially, my course was about technology in the SEC. And there was always a lot of you know, well, what does a company say when somebody comes out and says that company is doing terrible things or the company is doing great things and those things and what people are saying is wrong? How does the company react to that? And I think the best answer to that for a public company is to say, look at our filings. That's what we have to say on this subject. Thank you very much. You know, when you go out and you start, you, you know, picking out certain certain ideas to communicate, but you're not, so you're communicating positive things, but you're forgetting to say the negative, you can get into trouble. And I, I see this in, in all sorts of stock promotions. You just have to disclose the risks at the same time. So getting back to your question, for a short seller, do they have to tell the world that they might be short something if that's their strategy? That isn't necessarily true. Again, you have to look at specific regulations of what, uh, they are re required to say by the SEC and what they're required to say by their to their shareholders in their various shareholders or limited partnership agreements. You know, this whole saga seems to me like it's we've seen technology as a great democratizer, right? And I, I, I mean, maybe these subreddits are the are the key to that. But the fact is, and you know, that ordinary investors now can see what the short uh, percentages of uh, any given float of a public company now with the touch of a button. They don't need a special, you know. Uh, you, you know, um, dashboard or uh, subscription to some kind of fancy service to be able to do that, or a broker even they can they can just find it. So they don't necessarily need, I guess, the short report seller uh, to tell them where the skeptics are. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, I think that's one of the most incredible things about the internet is that information is everywhere. And I think the SEC did a decent job when the internet first started coming first started becoming popular to as Arthur Levitt did to try to explain to people how to find the right information I mean for for you guys Rafe and Jack you're you're every day digging into the right information you know an, an analyst might look at all the public filings might might even show up on a Sunday and see how many parked cars are outside of a company headquarters on a particular afternoon or you might stand outside of a 
of a Nordstrom and count the people who walk out with bags. You know, you can really sounds like investigative research, John. I like it. <laughs> yeah, I mean that's 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 what makes you guys special in terms of providing information for people. It's getting them the kind of information that they just can't they just can't find anywhere else, and really taking that information, putting it together, and drawing conclusions. But what's what's so interesting? There's so many ironies in all of this. Is that in some ways the system has worked. You know, and, I, and I'm a big critic of the system, so it's pretty rare for me to say something like that. But if you look at, for instance, Robinhood, you know, I, I, I think it was awful that they suddenly stopped trading in these stocks, although they did allow their customers to liquidate their positions. What I think that is so interesting about all this is some of the ironies that we've been able to see firsthand, and they come to light in different ways. I, I'm not a person who hasn't criticized the SEC. In fact, many times I've criticized the SEC. But in this situation, I think it's okay to say that the system worked. And you might say, what are you, crazy? What do you mean the system worked? Well, okay, let's consider Robinhood, for example. Now, Robinhood and a whole bunch of other brokerage firms had to actually stop their um, trading in particular issues, uh, particular stocks. And the reason they did that was because of net capital requirements, because of requirements from their clearing broker, all of these sort of circuit breakers that were there so that that would sort of force Robinhood. And again, I, I'm not an expert on Robinhood's operations or anything else, but they would force Robinhood to protect all of their customers. So I think when Robinhood said, hey, you can liquidate your positions if you want, but we don't want you buying any more of these stocks. It's creating too much for us. We're just not big enough to handle this. And so they stopped trading. So it's triggered, you know, 30 or 40 different class actions and this incredible outrage on Capitol Hill. But the reality is that that's what the system is supposed to do. It's supposed to protect all investors above all else. And that's why you look at Robinhood's terms of service that says they may at any time in their discretion without notice to anyone, prohibit or restrict the ability to trade securities. You know, it's kind of a, a no shirts, no service type of business retail brokerage. If they, if they don't want your business, they don't have to take it. So, you know, that's their prerogative. So I, I don't mean to defend them. You know, a decision as to whether or not you should have an account there, you should certainly consider what happened. And this wasn't the, the first failure of them. They, they failed also on March 2nd, uh, 2020, for about 17 hours with a, an outage of their trading services. So these are, and that, that's kind of a different outage. That's one maybe they might have had some responsibility to make sure their people could at least liquidate or get out of a stock instead of having to watch their investments go down and unable to trade. Investors expect the ability to instantaneous trade. And I don't think that's unreasonable given the way technology is. Investors also inspect that, expect that you are getting the best possible price when they ask you to buy a particular security. So I think those are, and I think those are not just reasonable expectations. I think those are expectations that every single brokerage should meet. And in this situation, Robinhood didn't meet them. And that might not necessarily mean that Robinhood has broken the law. I really make no conclusion on that. But it does mean when I look at the way the shutdown occurred, a lot of people were asking for the SEC to suspend trading in those securities, which would have been a much more dramatic 
step that would have been wholly unprecedented. So in this situation, whoever was in charge of Robin Hood's compliance and their general counsel and all the people working to make this decision, I think, you know, arguably, and this might upset Robin Hood investors or it might upset people on Capitol Hill, but they're supposed to meet these net capital requirements, meet their clearinghouse requirements. And if they can't meet them, there is a danger, there's a threat to their very existence, which would be a real threat to all of their investors. So they took the time out to kind of uh, borrow money and get their net capital in line. And uh, again, all of this will come out in these lawsuits, and I'm sure the SEC is investigating. I'm sure there's a four-cause examinations team at Robinhood and the other brokerages right now looking at all this very, very carefully. But that's a big irony kind of that I see in front of it, that in all of this mess, it might actually be that the system worked. Quite the take-home message, especially when you were in the fray. It didn't seem like anything was working, but that's that's a that could be the ultimate takeaway looking back. So one of the things I think this situation highlighted, John, are instances where you actually have more than 100% of a company's publicly floated shares being shorted, that the short interest exceeds the amount of available shares. I think a lot of people were surprised to know that that was, that was even possible. Would you think that after all of this, uh, that might be a matter of further scrutiny for the SEC? Absolutely. Absolutely. I think that's something the SEC certainly wanted to prohibit with regulation SHO. And I think um, it's very bothersome. And there have, there have been legions of people complaining about naked short selling and that sort of those sort of shenanigans. And it gets, again, so complex that you can't really find the intent. But I do see that as a very important avenue of SEC investigation and FINRA investigation, the Financial uh, Regulatory Authority, the self-regulatory organization. They have tremendous expertise in shorting. And I guarantee you that teams at FINRA and teams at the SEC are studying this carefully, not just to see um, what went, what sort of, um, if there was any fraud, but also just to confirm that their rules don't need updating or repair given this situation. Yeah, it feels like the technology can always run faster than the regulators. Um, so this is one of those moments where I think where there'll be uh, some catch up maybe. <laughs> um, you know, I, you know, one of the things that's also come up here, and it's kind of a different angle on this entire affair that's gone on, is that uh, you know some in Congress have said that the real bad guy in all of this was trading firms, particularly high frequency traders, that were kind of, you know, the allegation was they're using this situation as a casino, getting out in front of retail traders and maybe even institutional traders, and 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 uh, you know driving up the prices and distorting the markets even further. Yeah, curious to get your take on that because it seemed like an area, you know, when Congress people start to, you know, complain about something, there's the possibility of legislation and regulation. Yeah, that always bothers me. I mean, so many people treat stock picking like a casino, and I don't think it's right, but it's not against the law so long as you're not committing fraud. So I think it's easy to point fingers, as I said about these hedge funds, um, because they have created obscene levels of wealth for their owners. And it's it's hard to justify, you know, personally, do I want to invest in a hedge fund? You know, those are that's a very, very tough question because you're you remember Warren Buffett's famous bet with the S and Vanguard S&P index fund with a hedge fund as to whether or not over 10 years that investment would 
beat the hedge fund investment, and it did. And that was, I think, a million-dollar bet that Warren Buffett won. You know, an index fund is is totally liquid. It, it ebbs and flows with the way the market goes. It beats most funds all of the time. Um, you know, I, I, I should say it beats most funds most of the time. It's probably not accurate all the time. I'm sure there are hedge funds that have done incredibly well. But on the other hand, I think that those are very complex investments. And I think that if you're really looking carefully as an investor and you're trying to figure out whether you should be part of the casino or not, um, I think Congress is right that people that that the big players probably know a lot more than the small players, and that's never fair. But that's kind of the rules of road for for any sort of activity. And I think that it's important that that everything be transparent. Nobody al- be allowed to commit fraud. But you know whether or not people just want to gamble with respect to investing, I just don't know how you could regulate that, even if you wanted to. Other than disclosure, you know, that's why 17B is a, is a great act. It just says, hey, if you're being paid to promote a stock, you can do that, but you have to disclose the nature, source, and amount of that compensation. Just wants to make sure that the information that people know that you're not objective. That's a simple regulation, but I think it's also very effective. So this has been wonderful, John. So I'd close with this. I mean, looking back, let's say a year from now, you know, you made great points around the system working. Um, which might also be read as, you know, there might not, there might not be a great need for significant tinkering with, with how the, the, this new kind of trading momentum is being established and, you know, sort of exploding into the marketplace. Maybe this was just a blip. Maybe it won't happen again. Who knows? But where's your gut right now? Well, we're a year out from what happened here. What do you think we'll look back on as the lessons learned, if any? Oh, absolutely. Well, I think Congress will hold hearings and point fingers and do lots of grandstanding, demanding new regulations. But I, so far, I don't see anything that would get much traction. Um, though you never know. You know, we have a new administration right now. It's bizarre because at the SEC, you have an acting head of the Office of Market Regulation, acting head of enforcement, and an acting chairperson. So you really, for this whole you know, this whole mess to happen at this time is really, really challenging for the SEC with the lack of leadership that they have right now. Um, I can't say whether they're doing a good job or a bad job. It's, I think it's too early to tell. Um, but I think normally, if there were a chairman like Arthur Levitt or like Harvey Pitt, you know, some of the more, if you remember after 9-11, Harvey Pitt got on a train somehow the next day, got his way to Wall Street and after five days, he, he just by sheer will, he got the markets open again. And, you know, so he was really kind of front and center during that. And you don't see that at the SEC right now. You see some quiet statements that, hey, we're going to investigate. Not necessarily anything wrong with that, but you're not seeing tremendous leadership. You're not seeing them on television. You're not seeing them uh, speaking out. Uh, and they really can't because these are all acting people who know that just in a matter of Probably a month or two, they're going to no longer be in their job as acting. We'll be back to their ordinary civil service job. Remember, there's very few political appointees at the SEC. So I think SEC will investigate thoroughly. Perhaps they'll discover a few really inculpatory emails or texts, or maybe identify a disgruntled employee from a hedge fund, uh, maybe an informant, maybe somebody on the, the subreddit will be a registered person with the SEC and shouldn't be saying what they say. Um, and that person will be investigated and maybe um, th- their licensure will be questioned. 
Um, and uh, they'll be probably held to a higher standard, not to say that there are necessarily any violations, but the SEC will pour through and look for fraud, look for registered persons, look for, um, again, schemes and conspiracies that are nefarious and not just um, a bunch of people trying to uh, spread the word about a company that they, for whatever reason, believe their stock, the stock should be higher. I mean, there were some legitimate long holders who believed that the GameStop stock, GameStop, for instance, was undervalued. So um, I won't really, I don't want to analyze every one of those stocks. I certainly believe, again, those aren't the kind of investments that I would recommend. But at the same time, um, they're going to be they're going to be pouring over all of that data, all of the trading data. Um, the state's investigations might be more aggressive. Some of them have criminal authority. Some of them have lighter standards. And some of them are, are very, very, very aggressive, like Texas and New York. So I think you'll see those states take the lead in looking for things as well. I think the FBI will get involved sooner or later, because remember, as I said, they're embedded in the SEC division, enforcement division anyway. They're constantly meeting with the SEC. So if there is something something that really powerful evidence of fraud or deceit or nefarious intent that that'll be moved over to the Department of Justice to investigate. And that will probably make headlines, but those will be very cases to bring, hard cases to bring. Um, you know, I think the, the, what I'm hoping for is that the democratization of the financial marketplace will continue because, you know, pioneering firms like, like Reddit and Robinhood, they've really done a lot for individual investors. And that, and I, and I believe that any short sellers or, or if other market participants have violated regulation SHO, I think the SEC will get to the bottom of that and those bad actors um, will be charged. I think it would be nice if investors, after all of this, embraced more tra traditional value-based investing. And I, I also think it would be nice if hedge funds eased up, eased up on their profiteering and almost scavenger-like attacks on these pandemic-damaged companies. Um, and then I guess the last thing I would say is there's going to be a whole legion of market participants, and I'm sure you've already noticed this in some of your research, who are going to try to take advantage of this phenomenon and use it to profit. And I would just warn those people to be careful because these Reddit users are, are a force to be reckoned with. <laughs> their membership is growing and their influence can pop up at any time. And I don't think you want to be on the wrong end of their wrath. Uh, by any stretch of the imagination. Well, uh, 2021 United States of America, it is a nation of conspiracies, both real and imagined. And I guess we'll have to find out if what has gone on here is a real conspiracy or an imagined one. Well, John Reed Stark, unbelievable conversation. I learned a ton. I hope we can count on you to come back when the next bizarro chapter of stock trading uh, happens in America and we await a regulatory response. Thank you so much for joining Double Take. Oh, absolutely. Thanks, Ray. Thanks, Jack. Thanks for having me. This was a lot of fun. Can't wait to listen to it. Investments Corporation is a registered investment advisor and subsidiary of the Bank of New York Mellon Corporation. Any statements of opinion constitute only current opinions of Mellon, which are subject to change and which Mellon does not undertake to update. This podcast, or any portion thereof, may not be copied or distributed without prior written approval from the firm. Statements are correct as of the date of the material only. 
This recording may not be used for the purpose of an offer or solicitation in any jurisdiction or in any circumstances in which such offer or solicitation is unlawful or not authorized. The information in this recording is for general information only and is not intended to provide specific investment advice or recommendations for any purchase or sale of any specific security. Some information contained herein has been obtained from third-party sources that are believed to be reliable, but the information has not been independently verified by Mellon. Mellon makes no representations as to the accuracy or the completeness of such information. No investment strategy or risk management technique can guarantee returns or eliminate risk in any market environment, and past performance is no indication of future performance. The indices referred to herein are used for comparative and informational purposes only and have been selected because they are generally considered to be representative of certain markets. Comparisons to indices as benchmarks have limitations because indices have volatility and other material characteristics that may differ from the portfolio, investment, or hedge to which they are compared. The providers of the indices referred to herein are not affiliated with Mellon, do not endorse, sponsor, sell, or promote the investment strategies or products mentioned herein, and they make no representation regarding the advisability of investing in the products and strategies described herein. Please see Mellon.com for important index licensing information. CFA and Chartered Financial Analyst are registered trademarks owned by CFA Institute. For more market perspectives and insight from our teams, please visit www.mellon.com.